Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 6, verse 19, through chapter 7, verse 16. This is found in the Pew Bible, which is, should be right in front of you, on page 955. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take this one, uh, take this one home with you as a gift from us. We want every, everyone to have a copy of God's Word. Let's hear now from God's Word. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, I say this, not a command. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Paul, um, for reading God's word, for welcoming us this morning. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I'll just add my welcome to Paul's. I'm so glad that you're here this morning and um, that you're uh, here worshiping uh, at, with your church family. And especially if you're newer, uh, thanks so much for coming, and especially coming on a morning where you probably had a little less sleep. I know walking through the doors of any church, whether you've uh, been a part of the church for a long time or this is brand new for you, is a difficult thing to do. So thanks for doing that this morning. Thanks for being with us. And 
Um, as we continue in this series in 1 Corinthians, I'd love to just pause here at the beginning uh, and pray as we look into this passage and just ask for God's help, ask for the help of his spirit um, that he would be at work in each one of our own hearts and minds as we uh, learn from this passage together. So um, let's do that now. Father in heaven, we're so grateful, and I, I pray this nearly every week, but it's, it's true every week. I'm so grateful that you've given us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you didn't leave us um, wondering what you're like or wondering how you designed your world to work. But in your grace and in your mercy, you have revealed us um, your word, your, your, the scriptures, um, and that they support and, and point us supremely to Jesus, the living word. Um, this morning, would we see Jesus? Would we become more like him? We pray this in his name. Um, the one mediator that we have who brings us into your presence and by the power of the Holy Spirit who even is praying within us when we don't know how to pray. Um, we pray this in his name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, one of my favorite parts of being a pastor is getting to do uh, wedding ceremonies, and so I love getting to do it. It's a, it's a great thing, and I do a lot of them here in this building, and I have the best seat in the house, so I get to stand down at the aisle with the groom and watch his face as he sees his bride come out of those doors and walk down the aisle toward him, and then I get sort of the up-close um, look as the couple is making these promises to one another, committing their lives and their love to one another through thick and thin. Um, they are amazing moments, uh, but they are also moments where anything can go wrong. And uh, I remember one wedding, I may have even shared this story once here before, but I remember one wedding I was doing in this building um, where the bride, mid-ceremony, without any warning or explanation, just walked off the platform and out of the room. Uh, she just left. And so I was left there standing with the groom on the platform, just sort of improvising and talking about, it seemed like probably 20 minutes. I think it was two, which seems like forever uh, when you're up in front of a group of people wondering what just happened to the bride. And I was like, maybe we need a little intermission. We just need a little rest. Well, well thankfully, it turns out she just felt like she was going to faint, and she was back and ready to go after a glass of water and a few deep breaths. And so after that, I figured, well, we are ready to go. Uh, this is the one hiccup. There's always one hiccup in the wedding. This was a, a bigger one than normal, but fear we're good to go. Uh, but I was wrong because after the couple exchanged their vows, they had decided they had wanted to celebrate communion together. So I turned to go to celebrate communion, um, and there's no bread, and the cup is dry. And so then I'm sort of pantomiming communion with them. We're just sort of acting it out there in the moment. Um, so, so weddings, they're joyful, but they're also sobering moments. And that's because marriage is hard. And, and marriage is hard for the very same reason that, that weddings are difficult at times, because anything can go wrong. See, marriage is an amazing, stunning thing. So are weddings, but they are also places where anything can go wrong and where something always does go wrong. And that's why we say in the wedding vows right from the beginning, for richer or for poorer, right? For, for better or for worse, uh, in sickness and in health, because we know right from the beginning, this is a place where anything can and does go wrong. And, and I love being married. I love Rachel. We have an amazing marriage uh, at the end of May, it's exactly 12 weeks and two days from this morning, not that I'm counting, um, we are getting four days away together on a beach, just the two of us, and I can't wait to spend that time with her. But marriage is hard. 
And it's hard enough with Jesus, with the power of the gospel shaping everything in your life. And I can't imagine it without him. Because left to myself, I make marriage all about me. But marriage isn't about me. Marriage isn't about you. Marriage isn't about you. And many of you this morning, I know you well. You have healthy marriages. Others, your marriages are a mess. I'm thinking about divorce or maybe just settling for what seems like a life of unhappiness together. And then most of us, somewhere in the middle, it's either, you know, you're, you're, it's not awesome, but you're not killing each other either. It's just, it's fine. And marriages have seasons, right? Now, if you're here this morning and you're single, you may be wondering if this message has anything to do with you, and you should have just stayed in bed and got that extra hour of sleep. But notice that Paul also mentions singleness here, and even more so at the end of chapter 7. And in two weeks, we're going to unpack that and have an entire message on singleness and how God has designed singleness and the church to work together. But even now, if you're single, sure, it may look differently, but, but Jesus also speaks into your friendships, into all of your relationships, all of our relationships. And what Paul says here specifically about marriage applies in a general way to all relationships. Now, students, if you're here this morning, uh, you know, marriage may seem like really far off for you. Like, that's something way down the road. But it's as important for you as for the rest of us to have what Tim Keller calls in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, a brutally realistic yet glorious vision of what marriage is and can be. I love that language, a brutally realistic and yet glorious vision of what marriage is and can be. And, and by the way, if you only ever read one book, or even if you just only ever skim one book, or even if you just buy a book to have in your house on marriage just in case you need one, um, if you only do one, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller is just a phenomenal book. There's lots of great marriage books out there that even do different things than what Tim and Kathy are doing here, but if you just get one, this is such a great resource. Um, and also, now let me pause here and just remind us of, like, how do we get here in 1 Corinthians talking about marriage? Where, where have we been? Well, we're in the middle of this letter that Paul wrote to this little church in Corinth. It's brand new. Um, he planted it. He left. Now he's back um, writing to them. He hasn't visited them yet. He's going to talk later in the letter about how he wants to come and visit them. But things have just kind of fallen apart when he left. And so, um, in this part of the letter— He's been addressing and spending a lot of time talking about sex. So thanks a lot, Paul. Uh, I don't know if anyone else is ready to move on to another topic. I'm getting ready to move on to another topic. Um, but it's interesting, though, isn't it? And what I find is that whenever we talk about sex, yes, it's uncomfortable. And Rachel wanted me to say, she read through all my manuscript last night, and she said, if they think it's uncomfortable, how do I feel? It's like, you know, I'm, I'm Bill's wife listening to him talk about sex for three weeks. So just, you know, just know if, if it's uncomfortable for you, um, you're not alone. Um, but whenever we talk about this, yes, it's uncomfortable, but we always receive the most comments about how important it is. And people are so thankful that we're willing to go here. And so if you've missed the last two Sundays, I'd really encourage you to listen to the podcast um, and spend some time reading through these texts. 
And as we've said each week in these kind of three weeks where we've been talking about sexuality and God's design for it, the theme of these Sundays is that if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't belong to you anymore, which radically transforms our view of sexuality, really of everything in life. And so here we are talking about sex in the context of marriage. And for many of this, this hits close to home. Because for some, today feels like we're moving a little bit from theory and some nice theology to this is, this is kind of meddling. This is really into our day-to-day lives. Because you know if you're married, you, you still got problems, right? Getting married doesn't fix anything. And if, so if you're dating or you're engaged, you're like, man, once we get married, that's going to make everything better. Even if you're single, you think maybe that's going to make everything better. Marriage doesn't fix anything. If anything, marriage just shines a spotlight on how messed up you really are. Because all of a sudden you have someone living with you 24 hours a day who sees everything. And in Corinth, things were really messed up. As we saw earlier, uh, some of the people in that church, they were, they were having sex with prostitutes. Others in the church were saying that, that sex is so gross, it's so, um, so base, so sort of uh, polluting that it, not even married people should be having sex. And so then, then you have all these questions about divorce and remarriage, which given the issues they were having, kind of makes sense, Right? I mean, if you have some people in the church who are visiting prostitutes, other people were saying you shouldn't have sex even in marriage. Like, everybody's going to want out, right? I mean, no wonder they're dealing with divorce. Now, in this passage, Paul doesn't give us sort of the three easy steps to your best marriage now. And, and you wouldn't believe him even if he did, right? And if that's what I tried to do this morning, you, you'd fire me as your pastor because it's not that simple. I mean, if you've been married for any length of time, you know it's not that simple. The issues are complicated, and there's no quick fixes. And I love how Tim Keller puts this. He says, marriage is glorious, but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, and yes, it is also blood, sweat, tears, humbling defeats, and exhausting victories. He says, no marriage I know that is more than a few weeks old could be described as a fairy tale come true. Everyone who is married struggles with marriage, period. So it's no wonder that that many of us today wonder, is getting married even worth it? Is it even worth doing? Yet one of the best gifts that we can give to each other, to our children, to our culture, to the church, is great marriages. Marriage isn't the ultimate, but it's a good And if Jesus died to redeem you, if the gospel truly does change everything, there's got to be some practical ways in which the gospels, in which the scripture actually speak into our lives, the practical workings even of marriage. What we have to remember is that marriage isn't about you. Marriage isn't about you. And what Paul shows us in this text this morning is that marriage is more about giving than getting. Marriage is more about holiness than happiness. And marriage is more about grace than failure. So, so marriage is more about giving than getting. It, it's more about happiness, more, more about holiness than happiness. And it's more about grace than about failure. 
And the first thing that we see in the text is that marriage is, it's ultimately not about what we get from it, but how we can give to one another. And in verse 1, Paul begins this way. He says, Now concerning the matters to which you wrote, so they wrote a letter to him, he says it's good not for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. So verse 1 here in chapter 7, he's introducing a new topic in the discussions. And, and the Corinthians had written a letter to Paul. We don't have that letter. Man, it would help out so much if we did have that letter. We didn't, we didn't get that one saved. Uh, we don't have that one. And so when he writes, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. You'll even notice in your Bible, that's in quotations. Because mostly like what's happening here is Paul is quoting quoting from the letter that they wrote to him. And then he's working to qualify and correct their misunderstanding. So that's what they wrote to him. And he's saying, no, that's not quite why. Let's, let's think about that. And not unlike today, the Corinthians' view of marriage and sex was that it was either nothing or that it was everything. Either it was the most important thing or it was, it was nothing at all. But Paul's going to outline a way forward that's not anti-sex, that's not anti-marriage, but also doesn't make either one of those things the ultimate thing. Marriage is, is ultimately, it's, it's more about giving than getting. And in these verses, Paul discusses sex, but the principle that he discusses here extends to all of marriage because neither sex nor marriage as a whole is about you. They're about your spouse. And if this is the case, then, then why were some of them saying that sex wasn't a good thing, that it was something that they should avoid? Well, this comes out of a dualistic way of understanding the world. So you see, uh, the philosopher, or philosopher Plato, who was deeply influenced the Greco-Roman culture, said that really there's, there's two realms. There's the physical realm and the spiritual realm, and that the physical world is just a shadow at best, if you maybe remember cave, the cave analogy from, from Plato. And at worst, it's an impediment to spirituality. And you could take this in two different directions. If the body is worthless, as the physical doesn't matter, then, then you could take the one direction and say, well, then it just doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. We can just we can have sex with prostitutes. It doesn't matter. We're just going to kind of throw these on the garbage heap when we're done with them. They don't, it doesn't matter at all. Or if you view the body as worthless, then we, we shouldn't allow ourselves any physical pleasure. And hence, we shouldn't even have sex, even in the context of marriage. And that's what Paul is addressing here. See, the early Christians were so influenced by that Platonic dualism by Plato, um, who was not a Christian, that many of them wrongly viewed sex as just a necessary evil. This is important for keeping the human race going, but other than that, we just got to limit it. And, and some of us still think that today. But it's important to know that that idea, that comes from Plato. That doesn't come from the Bible. When we look at the biblical story of sexuality, there are three things we need to recognize. One, that it's a gift from God. Two, that it's a gift from your spouse. And it's a gift to your marriage. You see, sex and sexuality is critical to the purpose and mission of your marriage, first and foremost because it's a gift from God. You see, there's nothing about sex that is inherently sinful. And don't miss that. I mean, so many people have thought for so long that Christians and Christianity is anti-sex. And honestly, if you've been here the last couple of weeks and we've looked at all the ways that sin has been distorted and marred by sin, you may have begun to get the impression that, man, this whole thing is just completely wrecked. But the Bible is really very pro-sex. Now, let me just give you a few examples. In Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. 
Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with the delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 10. My beloved is ruddy and radiant. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is like a polished ivory tusk bespeckled with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. Is it getting warm in here? Um, as Old Testament scholar uh, Tremper Longman notes, that when it comes to that ivory tusk language, he says the Hebrew is quite erotic, and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning. This is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is not a shy, shamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. So how about that, E.L. James? And Tim and Kathy Keller actually point out that the Bible is really a pretty uncomfortable book for the prudish. But we must remember that while sex is a gift, it is not the gift. It's not the ultimate thing. And, and as someone who, by God's grace, obeyed God's design and, and didn't have sex until marriage, I can tell you that I am infinitely glad that I obeyed that design. I can also tell you that sex, as good as it is, is also, it's weird, it's funny, it's awkward, and it's certainly not what you see in snippets on TV and in movies. And so if you're a student here today, or if, you, or if you're not married, you know, look, we don't do ourselves any favors when we hold out sort of this idea that you're, if you just save sex until marriage, that means you're going to have this mind-blowing sex that's way better than anything else you've ever experienced as sort of a reward for obeying God's design. I think the great theologian uh, Jeff Foxworthy um, <laughs> said it best. He said, getting married for sex is like buying a 747 for the free peanuts. So sex is a, some of you are getting, yeah, sex is a gift, but it's not the gift. But it's not just a gift from God to you, it's a gift to your spouse. And sex isn't about you. You don't belong to you anymore. You belong to Jesus first, and then in marriage, you belong to your second to your spouse. You don't belong to yourself anymore. This is why Paul continues in verses 2 through 4 and writes, But since sexual morality is occurring, each should have sexual relationships with, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have the authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, what Paul says here is shocking. Maybe it doesn't seem shocking to us at first, but what he's doing here is earth-shattering. Because sometimes we want to argue, and people want to argue, that, well, Paul is just, in writing 1 Corinthians and writing his other letters, he's just parroting back what the broader culture is saying in his time. This is just Paul telling what his culture says. And it's true, Paul's culture, both the Jew, Roman, Greek culture, would have agreed that the body of the wife, that she doesn't have authority over that, that she belongs to her husband. 
But they would have fallen off of their chairs when Paul continues and says that the husband doesn't have any authority over his body, but it belongs to his wife. That was unheard of in the first century. You see, the gospel both affirms and offends every culture at different points and in different ways. And actually, that's exactly what we would expect to find if, in fact, this is something that's revealed by God and not merely the product of a particular author or a particular culture. The Bible both offends and affirms every culture, but at different points. And sex is designed to be a mutually self-giving act, a gift to one another. And I want to be really sensitive here because there is disappointment in marriage and there are seasons in marriage and there are life stages in marriage and there's frustration and there's regret and there's apathy. And if you've been hurt or abused this morning, I'm so sorry. There may be way more pain than pleasure as you think about this subject. I don't want to skip over that. Your situation may be way more complex than we can address in 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. But I want you to know that there is hope. It doesn't have to be that way. God has designed you and your marriage for more. And I realize that in this moment, in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that hurt, it may seem absolutely impossible that it could be different. And if that's where you're at this morning, please seek help. I'd be glad to connect you. We have some amazing people, amazing counselors who I would love to connect you with. Know that you're not alone. So what Paul is saying to us here in this passage is is that you don't belong to you. So he's saying withholding sex is a sin just as demanding sex is also a sin. Manipulating for sex, using it as a tool to get your way, as a bribe or as a punishment, or even just allowing yourself to grow apathetic. Any sex or lack thereof that is not a mutual act of self-giving love is sin. Let me just say that again. Any sex or lack thereof in marriage that is not an act of mutual self-giving love is sin. Now, this does not mean that it's always going to be perfect, nor does it mean, guys especially, that you can have it anytime you want. Because gifts can't be demanded, right? Once you demand it, it's not a gift. Nor can gifts be used selfishly. And of course there's times when it's okay to say, it's just, it's not, to, not tonight. But sex is nothing if not self-giving. Sex is a gift to your spouse, and it's a gift to your marriage. Look at where Paul continues to go in verse 5. He says, don't deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and four times that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, sex is a uniting act. That's what makes it so valuable to your marriage. And this is why when we talked a few weeks ago about why sex outside of marriage is so damaging because of how it unites you to another person. 
And this is why you should never stop working on your sex life in marriage. Never stop communicating. It's, it's hard even in marriage to have good, honest communication about this, but don't stop trying. Have those hard conversations. Communicate. Keep working in this area. You should never be okay with just letting this area go. Again, different ages, different lifestyle stages. It looks differently, but never just let it go completely. Not that it has to be perfect. And in fact, unrealistic expectations can be just as damaging. Especially in an era of readily available pornography or just simply sex in the context of television, film, books. It's very easy to construct really unrealistic expectations of your spouse. And actually, the word deprive that Paul uses here in this verse, it's the same word that he used back in chapter 5 to describe people who are ripping one one another off and suing one another in court. Paul's saying, don't cheat each other in marriage. Don't cheat your marriage for obvious reasons, Paul says. Because look, if your sex life is, is lousy or non-existent, you're setting yourself up for disaster. Because temptation is going to be that much harder to resist. But it's not just that. And, and, and I think we miss this often. Sex is a gift to our marriage because it's meant to be a living metaphor. It's meant to be a living metaphor. Self-giving joy in the bedroom leads to self-giving joy everywhere else. And self-giving joy everywhere else, don't miss this, leads back to self-giving joy in the bedroom. Now, wives, I I know that as a man, I can only see this from my very narrow, very male perspective. And so if it helps, I had several women read my uh, sermon this week and give me lots of good feedback. Um, Because I don't want to be stuck seeing this only from a perspective just as a guy, because we need to see this as a perspective as as God sees it. That's what we want. We want to, what is his design for this? But truly, intimacy there leads to intimacy here. It's how God has designed it. And this means that sex is not an optional part of your marriage. Every one of us could live without it. Jesus never had sex, and he was the most fully human person who has ever lived. Don't ever forget that. This isn't what we live for. But sex does unite us the two shall become one flesh over and over again. However, our natural tendency after the fall is to pull apart, to separate, to to distance ourselves, to hide. Just look at Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. I mean, right after they sin, two seconds later, they cover themselves. They're hiding. They blame one another. They feel ashamed. And we've been hiding from one another ever since. And so we end up in marriage withholding or demanding or just lazy but we were created for intimacy. And the fall, though, is always driving us away. And if you're married, don't you feel that? I love how Tim and Kathy Keller summarize this. They say, indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful, God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And you must not use sex to say anything less. And so according to the Bible, 
A covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security that allows for vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of that covenant. It's your covenant renewal ceremony. And again, this is why two weeks ago we talked about how sex outside of marriage is so damaging. And again, the same is true with lust and pornography. Lust by definition takes. Real sex by definition gives. You see, lust, it trains us to be takers, not just in, in the bedroom, but in every part of life. And it will ruin your marriage. Because if you take there, you're going to take everywhere else, and it will destroy you. Rachel and I often talk about how Satan will do anything he can to get you to have sex before you're married, and he will do anything to prevent you from having sex after you are married. And we've seen that dynamic play out in our own relationship. I mean, what once seems like this barely containable desire becomes something that, that you have to work hard at, that you have to make time and energy for. And so whether you're here this morning, whether you're married or unmarried, don't let Satan win that battle. Before we move on, just a few quick questions. First of all, where, where do you need to ask for forgiveness? I have to ask forgiveness all the time. From God, from Rachel, for my, for my selfishness, for my inattentiveness. Where do you need to change and can we as your church family help in some way? Accountability, resources, counseling. And this is, if you're married, this is too important to let suffer in your marriage. So, so talk to me. Talk to Paul. Talk to John. Talk to one of our, our pastors. You're not alone. We have lots of great people who would be delighted to help and come alongside so how can, and then how can you give yourself away? Because marriage isn't about you. How can you give yourself away today? What's one thing you can do today? And it doesn't have to be, don't limit this to the bedroom. Because marriage, like all of Christian life, is a continual, lifelong effort and joyful, self-giving sacrifice. I mean, that's who Jesus is. That's what he's done for every one of us. He gave up everything for you, for me. He died to give us everything that we need. And if we are his, we have everything we need. And if we have all of that, then we can be givers, not takers. So next, in verses 10 through 16, Paul shows us that, that marriage is more about holiness than happiness. That marriage was more about holiness than happiness. And, and that's not easy for us to hear. It's, it's not easy for me to say especially because I truly do believe that one of the loneliest places a person can ever be is in a bad marriage. Some of you are there today. It is so lonely. But when we enter into marriage, we enter into something that is, that is bigger than us. It's bigger than our spouse. We enter into something that isn't just about feeling good, but is about telling a story. It's a living picture of God's unwavering faithfulness and love and mercy and forgiveness and devotion through thick and thin, good and bad and ugly. That's what marriage is supposed to be a picture of. And, and if that's true, then, then maybe, just maybe, 
we might be able to agree with the Bible, what the Bible says about divorce. And again, I mean, it, it makes sense that Paul brings up divorce here in this pa- passage, because if this is what their marriages were going through, it's no wonder they're struggling with divorce. And there comes a point in many marriages, again, some of you are there right now, some of you have been there, when it seems like your greatest chance at happiness is a life without your spouse. But what does that matter? Because if you're with Jesus, the question isn't what's going to make me happy. The question is what's going to make me like Jesus? That's true for everything. That's not just true for marriage. That's true for everything in our lives if we're followers of him. This is why Paul writes in verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. And what Paul means there is simply he's, he's paraphrasing Jesus. He's not quoting him exactly. That, that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. You see, divorce is, is not a sin for some arbitrary reason, but because of God's good design in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Marriage is designed to image God's relationship with his people. So when Jesus prohibited divorce, for example, Matthew chapter 5, he said divorce was permissible, though never ideal in the case of adultery. And Paul adds another possible reason here. If two non-Christians get married and one of them becomes a Christian and the non-Christian spouse takes off, he said, Paul says then it might be permissible in that kind of context as well. Now, I don't think this is necessarily the only two situations in which divorce is permissible. I mean, perhaps in abuse or other extreme circumstances, it's permissible as well. And and actually, let me just pause here again and say right at this point that if you are in an abusive relationship, you need to do two things. First, call the police. Maybe you need to do that today. And second, then call me. Because we will get you help. And we will never let someone stand behind God's word to cover abuse. Never. But listen, what is absolutely clear is that God hates divorce. It's never ideal. It tries to rip apart what God has joined together. And it's clearly not permissible for for falling out of love or fighting too much or getting bored with each other or having a lousy sex life or or honestly 90% of the reasons that people get divorced today. It's sin, plain and simple. University of Chicago sociologist uh, Linda White um, published a study a few years ago titled, Does Divorce Make People Happy? Findings from a study of unhappy marriages. It's a fascinating study. And what she and her colleagues found was not only that the benefits of divorce have been oversold, but actually that two-thirds of people in unhappy marriages became happy in five years if they stayed married and did not divorce. Now, in saying that, I'm not trying to minimize the pain of awful marriages. 
Because I truly do believe that a bad marriage is one of the loneliest places you can be. If you're single, that's really lonely. And I was, didn't get married until I was 28. So I know the pain of being single. But you have at least the prospect, the hope maybe, of being married someday. But when you're in a lousy marriage, there's so much pain. You feel trapped. So I'm not trying to minimize that. Please don't hear that. And please hear me, I'm not trying to heap guilt or shame on those who are divorced. And I'm also not saying that marriages shouldn't be happy. They should. Marriages should be happy. But what I'm saying is that if I make my happiness the ultimate goal of my marriage, I'm setting myself up, one, for massive disappointment and even the destruction of my marriage. That's true for you as well. In verse 12, when Paul says that these are his words, not Jesus, he's not saying that you don't need to listen to these words, but simply that he's not quoting Jesus. Um, these are still God's word to us. And did you notice that how holiness was on display in this passage? It's really interesting. He says, somehow the unbelieving spouse and children are made holy because of the faith of the believing spouse. I and mean, it's kind of strange, right? What does that really mean? Well, it doesn't mean that they're somehow shoved into being Christians against their wills, but it, it means that they're set apart in some kind of unique way. And in remaining together, the unbelieving spouse has so much more opportunity to see the gospel, to be rescued. It's like Paul says in verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether or not you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will not save your wife? And Paul doesn't say there, who knows, maybe you'll find happiness either way. And he certainly doesn't say, well, maybe it will be easy. But he says, maybe it will be better. Maybe holiness will happen. Maybe you and your spouse will become more like Jesus. Your marriage isn't about you. Again, we need to seek for forgiveness. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. But if that's a part of your story, if that's something you've experienced in your life, have you confessed that to God? Have you repented of whatever led you there and whatever role you played in it? Because the gospel's big enough to, to cover that. That is the good news of the gospel. It's not the unforgivable sin, far from it. Or maybe that's the path you're on this morning. And as soon as your, your spouse stops making you happy, you're saying, I'm done, I'm out of here. But that's not what marriage is for, and that's not why Jesus died. Every one of us, no matter what, we, we need to repent. And what needs to change? Maybe your expectations, maybe your priorities. What do you really want? What have you really held up in your marriage as the ultimate goal? Do you want to be happy or do you want to be like Jesus? And of course there should be happiness in marriage. Life with Rachel makes me so happy. I'm, I'm married to the most incredible woman on the planet. And my favorite moment of every day is going to sleep next to her at night. But if I'm expecting Rachel to be my everything, my satisfaction, to provide a path for all of my joy, not only am I doomed to disappointment, but I'm putting a crushing weight on her. No other human being can be that for you. And if you've made your spouse the, the ultimate, the person who's going to make everything fine in your life, 
you're going to crush them. And even worse, it means that, that they're an idol in your life. You see, if I make Rachel my God, if I make her my Savior, then one day, either I'm going to bury her or she's going to bury me. And who's going to comfort our breaking heart then if our Savior is in the ground? Your spouse cannot be your Savior. It cannot be your God. So what's just one thing you can do today to pursue holiness rather than happiness in your marriage, in your relationships? kind word that's undeserved, an act of service, show of self-giving love or respect. Because marriage, it's, it's more about holiness than happiness because marriage isn't about you. And then finally, this last point is really short. <laughs> marriage is more about grace than failure. For you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. And as we've talked for these three weeks, for some of you, this has felt like one long guilt trip. From apathy to regret, from arrogance to shame. I mean, so many messes. And it's so easy to feel like a failure. So I've spent all this time studying and praying and thinking through this. I mean, God has convicted me over and over again. It's so easy to feel like a failure. And, and change feels so far out of our reach. But marriage is ultimately about grace. It's, it's not about failure. Because marriage isn't about you. It's about Jesus and his bride, the church. It's about God making ugly things beautiful through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5, I love what Paul says here. He says, Christ loved his bride, the church, and he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So single or married, male or female, Christians, the church, you and I, followers of Jesus, we are the bride of Christ and he will do that for every one of us, individually and as a whole. Would the marriage that Christ community not be about us, but vividly portray that? Maybe they're torturing the kids downstairs. I'm not sure what's happening now. <laughs> Would our marriages be a picture of that? of self-giving love, would we give ourselves for one another? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, every one of us here this morning, whether, whether we're single, married, whether we were divorced, whether we've lost a spouse to death, every one of us, when we talk about this stuff, we just we feel the pain, we feel the shame, the hurt, the brokenness, the unfulfilled expectations, the, the sadness, the longing. So I pray in this moment, would your grace by your spirit, would it come and meet each one of us where we're at? 
Would it provide hope where there's despair? Would it provide comfort where there's grief? Would it provide truth and clarity where there's deceptions and lies and confusion? Father, would you make us the kind of church that that loves one another in the way that you have loved us? With sacrificial abandonment. That it's not about us. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory.